Well, thank you for coming. I love the title that I gave to this, The Church as Storytelling. I'm a storyteller. I love to hear stories. And uh, the title was The Church as Storyteller and the Allure of History. It took me a long while to decide on the word allure, but history is alluring to me. Now, there's a change, because I said recent histories of churches of Christ and Christian churches. And the only member of the Christian church on this panel said to me, Jamie said, we don't have time to do the Christian church. We hardly have time to do the church of Christ. So cut that, and let's just do the church of Christ. So with Jamie telling me that, I said, that's a good decision. So we're talking about recent histories in churches of Christ. And uh, I'm starting with three questions, and we'll go through. And then there are several uh, other compartments. We've handed out, uh, the reason I'm handing out a page and a half on two themes is we will mention these themes, but we don't have time to go into these two as deep as a lot of you would like to go into them. So we're giving you a page and a half of books that you could follow up and read on. One is racial histories of churches of Christ, and the other is gender histories or histories about women in churches of Christ. And uh, those will come up in our discussion. So that's why we handed this out, so you can go further with it. We will talk up here for the first hour, maybe more. Uh, and we'll just see how we're not going to take the break in the middle. Yeah, we have till 4.15 if we need it. And if you need to leave for any reason, the door in the back there goes right down to the first floor. If you need a restroom, those of you who grew up this door here, we're all family here. You're not going to offend anybody if you have to get up late. And uh, we're just honored to have a full room. If we have time for questions from the audience, we will do that. We won't know that for the first hour, but we'd like to hear some of your questions. But we absolutely have to leave time at the end for the future. One of the things I said in the booklet was, what are the categories? What are the chapters? What are the stories we have missed so far in our storytelling? What are the books that need to be written in the next decade? Some of you are already writing them. Some of our panelists are already writing them. So we want to talk about the future at the end. We have to close by 4.15 because there's a lot of dinner for us. We could possibly be done at 4. So with all that, I'm ready to start the first question. I've already given them in advance the question, so I'll read it to you. I want each of the panelists to introduce themselves, talk about where they're from, what university they serve, what their title is, maybe how long they've been there, uh, where they grew up. I'd like to hear the hometown and the home congregation. And, um, but I have a question on this first one. I want to know what was the book, or books, plural, or a lecture, or a preacher, or some event that sparked your interest in the history of Churches of Christ. How did that happen? How old were you when it happened? It has resulted in you being on this panel today. So, Dyron, I'll start with you. Tell us who you are and get us off. All right, I'm Dyron Dorothy. So I, I teach world religions and church history here at Pepperdine. Been here about 15 years and I teach the class on restoration history. We change the name because nobody understands anymore, if they're under 40, what restoration history means. So we change the title to the Church of Christ. 
sort of so Jerry, did you want me to go ahead and talk about that uh, that book that, yeah. that got me interested? Yeah. Okay. So um, regarding what triggered my interest in the restoration movement, there's a book, and I'll get to that in just a second. But the the first thing is my father, when I was probably in junior high, he got into a correspondence with Leroy Garrett, who at that time was editing a Church of Christ journal called the Restoration Review. Any of you remember the Restoration Review? Okay. The Roy Garrett edited that. And I don't know what the issue was, but my dad, uh, who at the time I think was a deacon in the church, but he got in this correspondence. I knew about the correspondence. My dad would talk about it at the dinner table. But I didn't know what he was talking about. I didn't know what Stone Campbell meant. The second thing, I was in high school. I used to always go with my granddad to his office, because he was a, an emeritus elder slash preacher in Portales, New Mexico. And I would sit in his office, and we would talk. We were very close. And he was a member of something called the Old Paths Book Club. You know what that is, Jerry? Yeah. The Old Paths Book Club. Who remembers the Old Paths <laughs> Book Club? And so my granddad subscribed to that. It was a subscription service, and about every month he got a book or two, often on restoration history. So that's a bit of background. However, I went to Lubbock Christian University, and this was about 1993. I was perusing the books up in the library. They kind of had a tower library if you've been to Lubbock Christian. I was up in the, the, on the religion floor, or the fourth floor, something like that. And a book caught my eye called Evidences of Christianity. What this is, this was the book that got me interested in the Stone Campbell movement. It was a debate between Alexander Campbell and Robert Owen of Scotland. Robert Owen was an atheist, a famous and prominent atheist. And Alexander Campbell and Robert Owen had a public debate. And in my opinion, Alexander Campbell demolished him. And I was struggling with, am I believing in Christianity because I was raised by Christians? Are there reasons for my faith? And if you've ever struggled with those kinds of things, let me just put it this way. After I read that book, my fears and my concerns were put to rest. Okay, thank you. Let's go to Stanley. What did you read or hear or, and who are you? <laughs> <laughs> Hello, I'm Stanley Tower, and um, I recently received my PhD from Union Theological Seminary in the city of New York, and I'm teaching here at Pepperdine University of Religion Department, and Darren is my teacher on this I first um, encountered this conversation at Southwestern Christian College, which um, I went to, which is uh, Church of Christ HCC, the only HCC in Church of Christ, uh, for mm -hmm. two years, and I was taking a course on Reformation history. And at that time, I have a, a very sectarian um, and historical view of the Church of Christ. And I was slapping around the Yes, I'm absolutely with that. Um, uh, I, I was really questioning why do we need a Reformation history if, you know, we have Acts chapter 2. And so, those were some, I, you know, generated a lot of questions and had a lot of simple smites. I was having um, what people said, existential crisis. And then I came to Pepper and I woke. You know, there was a little so um, there were some conversations that were taking place, and I heard of Richard Hughes' 
um, revive the industry. And um, it is only really ironic because I, I didn't know the faith died, but um, that book really shook uh, my core and my faith. And uh, I had a lot of different partners that I spoke with about the book. And what I really liked about the book, was my story in some ways was in it. I know he starts off saying, you know, there's not really that story, uh, but he talked about Southwestern Christian College, he talked about Eugene Long, he talked about RCOs, and these are some of the people uh, that I uh, wrote about. Wow, so are you keeping track? The Campbell-Owen debate of 1829 and uh, Richard Hughes' book entitled Reviving the Ancient, Reviving the Ancient Faith. Laurie, we'll go to you. Uh, yes, I'm Laurie and I've now been covered in 20 years, which is sort of unbelievable in the process, really. Um, and my way of settling into I was a history major, also in way even before I came out to teach. Um, and I was looking for a topic for senior research projects. And my advisor at the time, David Barrett, says, hey, you should study women, because this was like the early 90s. And he said, that's the growing field. And I'd already had an interest in the history of religion that just clicked with me. You know, understanding what shapes what people believe, why people believe differently. And so I just kind of blended the two. And at that time, I actually studied a more than more, because I taught at high school in Utah, so it made sense at that point. But by the time I went to graduate school on the East Coast, I needed a dissertation topic. And by then, I was, I, well, I'd grown up in the Christian churches, and then, but, well, however, I had gotten into Church of Christ and kept, kept going to a Church of Christ when I was in graduate school in the D.C. area. And um, it hit me, oh, I can study women from this tradition. That would be interesting. And soon found out there hardly anyone had taken that on. The book that shaped me the most probably early on was Fred Bailey's dissertation. Mm -hmm. Was it the status of women in the disciples of Christ? Mm -hmm. Yeah. I should look at the I think that's what it's called. Um, and I realized, I realized how great man he was to write that book. And he did um, to write his dissertation that way. It's about women preaching and all kinds of things. And I was particularly pleased to find out, as I'm trying to find my own topic, that one really got me going on thinking about, oh, there's so much you could look at about what shape what you were doing. Because he looked at all about the temperance and all kinds of things. And, but what really thrilled me is when I figured out that there were hundreds of letters from Selena Campbell and her family that had survived. And there was enough for me to write biography about her. Yeah. And I was like, ah, and um, finished it off with a few years. So I, I did write my dissertation on the same And um, then a few years later, invited to participate in the global history. Because um, I wasn't fully into just doing some kind of women at that point. But then once I got involved with that, as it was wrapping up, I realized someone needs to do the project. It's just that. But I'll say more. So you got uh, the biography of Selena Campbell published by the University of Alabama Press? Yes. And what year was that? Oh, it's been a long time. Yeah. It was like um, 2009. And again, the author of the study of women was? Fred Bailey. Fred Bailey. Yeah, Fred Bailey. Long-time professor at ACB. Yeah. In fact, he eventually became my boss. Oh, okay. And I taught about there for many years, yes. 
Let's go to Wes. Uh, Wes Crawford. Uh, I was teach at Idaho University. I've become oscillated throughout my adult life teaching and preaching. I uh, preached for about 20 years and uh, now I've been in the classroom full time uh, for a few years. Uh, I, I tell people now that since 2019, this is the first time in my adult life I'm not paid to go to church. And so I'm just, I'm, I'm just teaching. And it's, been, it's been great being back in the classroom and studying these things and getting back, back in. Uh, thinking about this question, I think probably one of the books that's most formative to me has been for a long time is what Sam mentioned in Revival Age Faith with Richard Hughes. Uh, largely because I grew up in a Church of Christ household, as the many of us in this room, but history was never talked about. Uh, which, when you talk about history at all, I grew up in a context was there every time the doors were open, and I rarely heard the name Alexander Campbell. Um, never heard the name Martin Stone, and really that was the extent of it. And so having grown up in that household and, and mesh with Church of Christ, culture, but really didn't know anything about our history. And so when I was a student at Abilene Christian University, uh, I was introduced to Revival Ancient Faith with, uh, in Doug Foster's Restoration History class. And for the first time, I was introduced to all of these people. Uh, and the reason that was formative for me is because all of a sudden, my present made a lot more sense. I understood why we do some of the things that we do and some of our peculiarities. Uh, which is really what fascinates me about history and always has. I feel like it's extremely relevant. Uh, it's relevant for today. And I love teaching ministers who are going to be in congregations because I think it helps them guide their congregations through some very difficult conversations, uh, recognizing they're not having to read the wheel. People have had those conversations before. And, and I think that's really rich to understand that we're standing on people's shoulders. And, and so that, that's been a really important book. I will say this in terms of a moment. I remember sitting in Doug Foster's class as a graduate student years ago. And there was a particular lecture uh, that resonated with me. And I remember leaving that class that day just blown away. And I don't know if that was the, the moment that defined the rest of my life and saved us, but it was an important moment. Now, we were studying the moment where the Stone Movement and the Campbell Movement came together. And Doug was talking about, I remember the same, I can still see the whiteboard. <laughs> Here are all these theological categories. And here's theology, Christology, pneumatology, eschatology, sociology, all these major theological categories. And this is what Campbell believed, and this is what Stone believed. And what was remarkable is that they disagreed on every single one of them. <laughs> every single one of them. This, these were not minor disagreements. These, this is the heart of Christian theology, and they disagreed on everything. And still those two movements united. And I couldn't get past that for a long time. I just I didn't, I couldn't believe that that's the tradition of which I was a part. And that was an extremely important moment for me. Wow. And really helped me fall in love with this tradition all over again. And I think we need to reclaim some of that, that part of our history, which makes what we do really exciting. Thank you for sharing that. Jamie, let's, who are you? <laughs> Hello, my name is Jamie Gordon, and I teach at a little school called Johnson University, which is in Knoxville, Tennessee, uh, associated with the Independent Christian Churches. About half our students still are from uh, Independent Christian Churches that have a general evangelical. Um, in terms of what sparked my interest in the history of church Christ, it probably starts from my lived experience. So I grew up in the Church of Christ. My dad was a church Christ. 
preacher and planner. Um, until I was about 15, and uh, I'll spare you a long story. But anyway, so we moved, and we still went to a church of Christ in Ohio, but they had a piano and a flag. Right? <laughs> <laughs> uh, and those registered, I was 15, so all I cared about was me. Uh, that, was, that was my experience at 15. And so, and mom and dad didn't make a big deal about it. And so I just didn't know. It's the soldier's Christ. And it wasn't actually, I didn't really understand that until grad school. I even went to, you know, I went to Kentucky Christian University, which is an independent Christian church school uh, for undergrad. And then I went to Abilene Christian University for uh, my MDiv. And that is where this sort of really is for me because Doug Foster as well for me. Doug Foster is usually my major historical and spiritual mentor. Um, and it was in this class I actually fell in love with, like, oh my goodness, um, this is who I am. And I started to make sense of my own history as well. The book probably in those classes, where we also stole Richard's variety um, of faith. Uh, I'll go to Nathan Hatch, because it's the first book we read. Nathan Hatch wrote a book called The Democratization of American Christianity. It was published in 1989. It was like a real watershed in the field of American religious history. Uh, and in that book, he demonstrated all of these groups, and we were a couple of them, both Stone and Campbell, that thoroughly took on the American revolutionary um, de democratic spirit of the era. And he goes through and starts showing all of these new political movements that are really emphasizing like popular sovereignty and individualism and disregard for authority. And I was kind of read that book, and just everything sort of blew up. One of the beautiful things about history, and I love about being a history professor, is that um, things have not always been the way they are. That's, that, does, that seems like a natural thing, right? But everything that we do has a history. It has not always been this way. And I think I, didn't, I couldn't articulate that idea then, but I think that's what I was recognizing. Like, whoa, I come from a place. Because, right? I come from Acts 2. Um, that's what I thought. And then the hash is like, oh, no, you don't. In fact, you're deeply, deeply embedded in this particular context. And so at that point in time, history became a liberating experience for me, both liberating to like into things I love, and then liberating to Genesis and the things like, whoa, that's where that started? No thanks. But history really gives us the tools. So here's a connection. You're now at Johnson University, founded by Ashley Johnson, our fifth president. Howard A. White, you know, a hero. His name was Howard Ashley White because his father thought Ashley Johnson hung the moon. You know, he was so popular in Tennessee, Alabama, he gives Howard White the middle name of Ashley. So, let's like, uh, people like sometimes like, oh, what, what, you know, what group are you from? And I, and I heard like this, I say, I'm 100% and 100% independent Christian churches. Most people don't believe me, but it's true. These are all my people. I step in and like, this is my space. It's just, it's just my little experience. Let's go to John Mark. Well, my name, my name is John Mark Hicks, and I'm a professor of theology at Lipson University. I've been teaching in the Higher Education Church of Christ since my 40th year, just finished my 40th year. Um, Wow, you know, that's since I'm last and I comment on each one. Because <laughs> there's some things that resonated with me in, in each one. Uh, but mine starts a little earlier than um, my colleagues here. Uh, 
Hooper was in Virginia doing some research on the, or the uh, genealogy of David Lipscomb, Lipscomb's family came from Virginia. And my father, who was a minister at the Alexandria Church of Christ, invited Bob Hooper, who was a professor of history at David Lipscomb College at the time, invited Bob Hooper to come to uh, Alexandria and give a series of lectures on the restoration of them. And it was about eight lectures. And I attended all of them. I was 12, I had 13 years old, and I attended all of those, and it just got me going. I, I thought, this, this is what I want to study, you know, this is what I want to know about. And my father was a member of the Old Hat Book Club, and uh, I let everyone, you know, before I went to Free Harvard College, um, and uh, read, read Campbell's Debates. He also had a Christian Baptist, I read the Christian Baptist. By the time I was 16, I read the Christian Baptist. Um, don't remember much about it since I was 16, but I've been able to study it since then. So I really got my juices going. But I think the first, um, the first history uh, in terms of a modern uh, analysis or storytelling was um, Earl West, his first two volumes, um, Search for the Ancient Order, which Earl was, was a great, he could tell a good story. He could tell a story. And you, you learn from the story because he, he gave you the, the historical resources. He wasn't a critical historian. You know, he wasn't doing historical analysis as much as he was engendering the love for the people that he was writing about and a knowledge of them. And that's what I think. I'll close this little section by saying, in my case, it wasn't a book. I was at Great Lakes Christian High School in Canada. And uh, in January, along came something called the lectureship. I'd never heard of this. It obviously changed my life. And uh, went to a lectureship. That was January of 1960. It was the next year that a man was on the program. He had just moved to uh, the Washington, D.C. area. And his name was Earl West, but it wasn't our Earl West. It was, it was Earl West, the preacher from Cleveland, Ohio, and then Silver Spring, Maryland. And he told stories, and I'm all narrative. You start telling stories. And I, he was telling stories about Thomas Campbell, Alexander Campbell, Barton Stone, and Walter Scott. And I was hooked forever. And then we had a class the next year, grade 13. You have 13 years in Canada. And in grade 13, now I'm 19, Walter Dale teaches a class in restoration history. And the textbook, I still have it. I went and found it today. Attitudes and Consequences in the Restoration Movement by Homer Hamlin. And uh, I'm not saying it's, it's one of the great history, I'm just saying it was the one, the first time I ever had a history book. And in, after I started the, directing the Pepperdine Lectures, I wanted to honor somebody special each year with a dinner. The first year was uh, Old Brother Mac, E.W. McMillan. I thought if I don't do him now, he's going to die. He lived to be 102. But next year was Rule Limits because he had just lost the firm foundation. The owners had taken it away. But by the time I got to the fifth year, I thought, I want to honor Homer Haley. And then I found out from my good friend, Bedard Smith, that Homer Haley thought it was a trick, that Pepperdine would never honor him. He, he was from the NI churches, the non-institutional churches. And, uh, I had to send regard to him and say, you've got to convince him. I'm not interested in embarrassing him. 
He's the guy that, he's the first textbook I read. I want to honor him. Lagarde convinced him. And we brought him out here with a dinner. Now, what I was unprepared for was that he had taught at Abilene Christian for a, year, a number of years. And he thought he would be the next chairman. But Paul Southern was chosen. They were both great choices. Paul got it. And Homer ended up leaving and crossing the Rubicon. He goes all the way to Florida College with the NI churches. I bring him back to honoring, of all places, in Malibu, California, Pepperdine. I was not prepared for all of his former students, like Paul Faulkner, Bill Humble. They were weeping during the dinner that their teacher that they loved so much was being honored by Pepperdine. And he had been brought back. It was a great, great occasion. So now the second question, everybody give me one book that actually changed your thinking or challenged you. Or when I wrote this to you, I said a book that uh, informed you or enlightened you to the point where it changed your thinking or it challenged you and explained how it challenged you. What book on the history of churches of Christ? So we'll start with you, one book. Well, I never read something that's going to look at later. It's when I saw the question, this one was it's precious on my mind. The Absolute Whole by Jack Reese, that just came out this year, for a specific reason. I, I describe that book to some people as almost a sequel to Crux of the Matter, which came out was 2000, around the year 2000, so it's been 20 plus years now. So there, there's a book right here, just came out late this past year, if not published this year. Uh, Crux of the Matter was one of many books in that era and continues to describe the identity crisis of Churches of Christ. In, in many ways, over the last couple of generations, Churches of Christ, in many circles, have shed some of their historic identity, that sectarian identity, a certain biblical hermeneutic that's guided this tradition for a very long time. And so there have been a lot of books that have kind of talked about, we, we've shed that, and, and the identity has changed. But all of those books stop short of attempting to explain where do we go from here. We've had nothing to replace it with. And so in many cases, I think that's been important work that some of these books have done. They've, they've named some of these things, they've acknowledged it, but in a sense, we've been left in the wilderness. And I think Jack's book is one of the first that I've read that attempts to make the move of saying, here's, here's the potential future. You know, here's where we've been. And here's possibly where we could go. And we have some tools in our toolbox to help us get there. And maybe one of the reasons I'm attracted to it is those tools are his, it's history. Yeah. Uh, so he's talking about these themes, a part of our past, that if we were to reclaim some of those things from our past, we'd be really well equipped to move into tomorrow. So that, that's why it's been especially informative. In the blogs for this, <laughs> in the blog for this, uh, Tom Albright, great theologian, said that he couldn't put it down. Yeah. And uh, I've handed it to several, you know, I, I gave it to my wife. She is not a church historian, didn't really want to read this. I couldn't get it back from her. So it, it, is, it is so engaging that everybody I've bought a copy for, given it to, says the same thing. Right. Couldn't put it down. Yeah, I talked to somebody over lunch, and we, that book came up. And without prompting, the person described to me, and said, I felt like I was reading my own story. And that resonated with me because I thought the same way. Dyron, we'll go to you. One book. What uh, 
What has challenged you the most? What has challenged you the most? Yeah, or made you change your thinking about anything on the history of churches of Christ? One book. Yeah, I, I think uh, I must have missed, missed this in the email because I hadn't <laughs> thought long and hard about this one, but I'm going to try to do this on the fly. Um, ask my, my uh, brothers and sister here to, to help me. I can't remember the author's name, but it's a, a PhD dissertation that was done at Texas Tech University maybe 10 years ago, and it's about Barton Stone. Help me out, John Mark. Do you know who the author of that is? Wow, well, I can see his face, but I can't pull his name. Okay, we have some issues with James. What's that? James Russell James? No. Yeah, I know who you mean. But yeah, James Cook. James Cook, that's James right. Where do you go? The myth, the myth of the stone. Yeah, the myth of the stone camel movement. And so if we're talking about what challenged my perception, of Stone Camel history, I have always wondered, which is precisely the issue that caused Jack Reese to write at the Blue Hole, is I think a lot of us in the, in the Stone Camel movement are, have been given this idea that how did a movement of unity come to be so divisive? Um, and then what they usually say is that uh, Stone brings all this great unity because he was a great uniter. You know, Campbell wasn't there for the handshake of 1832 whenever they, the, uh, the Stoneites and the Campbellites joined. Campbell wasn't there. Raccoon John Smith was there representing Campbell. Campbell didn't approve. It took him some time to warm up to that whole idea. But the, this book by James Cook called, I think it's called The Myth of the Stone Campbell Movement, it's about stone. And it's basically saying that we're all in the Campbell movement. We're not in the Stone movement. Stone Campbell, that doesn't work. Stone died, and Campbell took the movement for another two and a half decades or something, maybe three decades. That we're not really Stones. Stone was charismatic. He was a man of the Holy Spirit. He believed in the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Campbell was a rationalist. He was, Campbell wasn't a, an ecumenist. Campbell believed that the Spirit was the word, the Bible. So they were very, as somebody said earlier, very, very different guys, Campbell and stuff. So the myth of the Stone Campbell has made me go back to this. I don't think we ever were a unity movement. We're a Campbellite movement. We're more about purity of doctrine. Now the, the disciples came along and they became the great ecumenists of our movement. But the disciples and the Church of Christ have almost nothing to do with each other anymore. So okay, that's probably enough said. Let's move on to John Mark. You've written so many books on restoration history, but which book has challenged you or helped you the most or changed your thinking? Yeah, can I comment on on Byron here? I mean, yeah. I think he's right. I think uh, Campbell never warmed up to something. I don't think. In fact, in Campbell writes the debate, He's glad that Stone's influence has dissipated, but we'll leave that alone. But in terms of recent books, um, you know, I think Jamie's book um, on the evangelical origins of the Stone Candle is, um, is a game changer type book in terms of rethinking. Is this an American movement? 
especially in Northern Ireland. So I think that's a, that is a helpful grounding that, that sees this particular history, of Stone Campbell history, uh, rooted in uh, something much earlier than, than just Thomas Campbell coming to Western Pennsylvania and getting something out of the blue. Continuation of the sort of work that he wanted to be involved in in Northern Ireland, but his church would let him do after whatever year that year. Okay, we'll go to Jamie. He's listed your book. So, which book were you thinking about? I was hoping I was hoping let me go last so I can take what everybody else did. <laughs> Anyway, what, um, 
that story, even though I was part of that work, it was something interacting with all these other historians really challenged my thinking about whose perspectives are we representing when we are writing about the young And of course, I look at these histories and go like, man, you guys just complete like ignoring what women are doing. So what challenged you is being one of the historians' participants in writing the global history. And just writing, whose perspectives are we going to include? Yeah. And, and that's what really got me thinking, and that's what made me realize someone needed to write a global history of women. Okay. And so I did that for the last. And there were well, rough, roughly how many historians, how many wrote that together? Fourteen. Fourteen. And of the fourteen, how many were women? <laughs> yes, yeah, so you, you should sometimes Google the picture of all the authors. Yeah. And, you know, that Sesame Street language one of these is not like the other. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, and it goes funnier than that because I showed up for the first meeting with a five week old baby. And, and most of the other folks were men in their 50s and that. Yeah. Although they were, I will say they were great to me. You know, it was wonderful. I knew you were the only one, but I was just trying to <laughs> bring you out on that. <laughs> Let's go to Stanley, one book that challenged you. Yes, I, I would also say the focus of um, Edward Robson and this history um, really challenged um, me and seeing, you know, even within African American Church of Christ, um, some of the things that we um, might hold on dearly to, but seeing the history of that was very challenging, but particularly his text on Amnesty Subway. And I actually uh, bought this is uh, an original text that I got from Sister Pitts, and I see. Henderson in the room, so he's a uh, long time member of Maury, and this is actually signed by MC Toto, and it was uh, typed by Pitts um, uh, as well, as uh, this, this text, uh, Bernice Pitts, and Carol Pitts, um, who's the editor, who used to teach here at the religion department, but also administrating on Church of Christ, and I see that you have So some of these issues related to race and gender uh, come up in this text, and these we really have. This is a Detroit, Michigan woman. I'm from Detroit. Yeah. This is the book he's talking about. I was under a heavy burden. Can you use your mic? Oh, I was under a heavy burden the life of Andy Tuttle. It's written by Ed Robinson. Ed wanted very much to be with us today. They're having a gospel meeting in Tyler, Texas at his church. And he actually, I didn't push him to do it. Well, maybe I did. <laughs> he actually went to his elders and asked if he could come to Melbourne, California, and be a part of this panel. And they said, no, Ed, we're having a gospel meeting, and you're our minister. You can't be running out of town when we're having a gospel meeting. So he's where he should be in Tyler, Texas, but he was loving this panel. Okay, the last question on these first three was, what have each of you written? Now, Stanley's the youngest, and he may not have anything incredible to say. What have you written that you think has actually made a valuable contribution to the Churches of Christ history. Which, which of your books? So, Dyron, one book would be what? Well, I mean, my primary area of writing is in comparative religion. So I write a lot about Islam, India, things like that. So, um, so as far as like uh, my corpus of publications in the in restoration history. It's kind of in the form of articles. Um, I wrote a couple of articles on race. One is 
actually coming out very soon. It's called Carl Spain's Waves. Um, I had one about uh, racism and missions in the Stone Candle movement. But the one that I want to talk about for a second here, it has an interesting title. It's called The King's English in a Tamil Tongue, Missions, Paternalism, and Hybridity in South India. And for anyone that's involved in missions, I think this article will be helpful because what it does is it says that sometimes churches of Christ in the United States send missionaries to far off places, in this case India, they establish a mission, and 50 years later, that place is still functioning like the church planter set it up to be. And so what I call it is a time capsule effect. So if any of you go to Africa or uh, Central America or South Asia, and you go to a church of Christ, you're going to see some things that you probably haven't really heard about or thought much about since the age of your grandfather. They're going to be using the King James. They're still going to be using sacred selections. They're still going to be functioning like people did in the 1950s in, in the church. So I call it a time capsule effect. And I use the King James Bible as illustrative of that because I, these are people in India. In these country churches, most of them don't speak English, but they're reading from the Bible in King James English, which is hard for me. Not to mention the people that English is their third language at best. Because they have, of course, their local language, and they have, uh, like Tamil in this case, and they have Hindi. English is maybe their third, fourth language, and they're reading King James English. I just thought, what in the world's going on here? And so, anyway, that article looks at this, what I consider to be a problem. These churches in the global south are not evolving. Okay. Let's go to Stanley. Have you had time to write yet? You've been doing a PhD dissertation? Or? All right. Um, I'll, I'll mention this briefly. I did um, write a chapter in uh, Reconciliation Reconsidered, which right. is with AC Press, and it was um, talking about the Church of Christ in relation to Ferguson. Um, and so I think, as was stated earlier, history has a lot to say about where we are presently. And so I think, um, speaking to our present moment, um, we think about race and think about uh, state-sanctioned violence also speaks back to our history. So I'll keep it there. I'm not a historian, but I'm a theologian. When, when do you graduate with your doctorate? Um, so I completed it November 29th um, this last year, yeah. but I walked May 20th. You're walking May 20th. That's what I was trying to get to. And you studied with Cornell West, who's really at Harvard and Princeton. So how are you doing that in New York City? Well, Did he come to New York? Well, he, he, was, he was actually at um, Union. Was He's he? at Union okay. now, so he was uh, on my master's thesis in PhD. Yeah. So all the time you're working on those degrees in New York, you're preaching where? In New York. Yeah, Brooklyn? Um, at that time, the, my first five years were my MDiv at King's Church of Christ in Brooklyn, New York. King's Church of Christ? In Brooklyn, yes. In Brooklyn? Yes. And now where do you preach? At Normandy Church of Christ in Los Angeles. Yeah. Where George Pe Pepperdine was an elder for a very long time. Yeah, okay. Lori, one thing you've written, you've written a lot of articles. Pick out one that you think has made a great contribution. Or do you go back to the biography of uh, Selena Campbell? 
talk about that in a moment. Let's save the future ones. She's writing a book right now, and she's been giving a sabbatical starting in January. So I've been telling everybody the book will be done in April. <laughs> <laughs> I, um, I mean, we can come back to you. John Mark, you've written so much. Is there one that you feel best about? <laughs> that's, a, that's a really hard question. <laughs> um, I think I think I would say that I think our the best work as far as church, the impact on the church and what I want people in the community to read and and to, to embrace is the book Bobby and I did. Come, which is embracing the legacy, the spiritual legacy of David Lipscomb and James and Hardy. Um, and it wasn't, it's not a critical history book, it's more of a, here's a, here are some aspects of their spirituality that we want to invite you to embrace and see the positive dimensions of Church of Christ. Um, well, I, I think that probably, if I went to somebody in the church would ask me, give me one book that you would done with LBC, Stone Campbell History, or, or something about something. That might be the one. Because most of the work I do is not really specific about um, uh, the whole book about a particular historical question. It's more, I bring in Stone Campbell History and theology into my books, yeah. whether, they're, whether it's about, um, you know, assembly or Lord's Supper or baptism or, you know, whatever it is, the topic, I bring some example of theology and history into play. Uh, I guess maybe in the global history, um, a, a three-fold distinction I introduced back in the late 1990s, uh, and I did some work on Moser, is the three traditions in, in um, Churches of Christ. There's the, the National Bible tradition, National Bible School tradition, there's a the Texas tradition, and then there's the Samurai or the Indiana tradition. And uh, I think that that typology, I think, works well. And it's part of so many people's Yeah, that was stimulating. The Texas tradition, the Tennessee tradition, the Indiana tradition. Yeah, yeah I don't think those are geographical. They're yeah. geographical in origin, but yeah. not geographical in terms of their typologies for different ways of approaching 
a number of topics. Yeah. Jamie, have I already used you on this question? <laughs> okay. Um, I'll also go with uh, the, maybe the chapter that I wrote in, because I'm going to talk about So the chapter in Slavery's Long Shadow, we have that book based on the race histories. Um, that book asked scholars, it was honoring Doug Foster and two things he's helped us grapple with is the history of race and the history of unity uh, of our movement and, and America broadly. So we asked scholars to write about the intersection of race and unity, especially this question. How have race relations affected the unity with the vision of the church? And that's the question everybody So I did a chapter on early American revivalism and early American nationalism in the early national era. One of the things it talked about, it looks at Barton Stone, but it looks at broader American, like the revival, 20th century making revivals, the early 1800s. Um, I did not, I had a PhD in history of Christianity, and until I wrote this chapter, I did not know the extent of the anti-slavery movement in the 1780s and 1790s. I had the idea that it was a Quaker. It was not. John Wesley, Francis Asbury, Barton Stone, leaders of Baptists, Congregationalists, Presbyterians, the Christian Church called slavery satanic and tried to disfellowship people who participated in owning other human beings, like in the 1780s and 1790s. Uh, major groups is that was not a part of my education, and so that became part of the narrative story that we need to tell because it looked like for a moment that white evangelicals were going to join with other groups who were marginalized um, and for, for the brave people, and for a minute, it looked like they were going to be a moral compass of society. Um, but what happens uh, is by the 1810s, all of those groups, almost without exception, in their white constituencies, moved from immediate emancipation to accommodation. Because they moved from the margins, they, they, they began to grow, they got bigger. They had members now who um, enslaved other people, and by the 1810s, you get a real move away from this. And so I tell that story. It's a tragic story, but it's an important story for us to be aware of. There were a lot of voices, and, and there were many in our movement. James O'Kelly, Art Stone, um, that were saying this is evil and this is wicked and we can't do this. But these developments in my 1810s and the new liberal movement among all those white leaders to um, uh, for, for the American colonization society. So if we are going to free uh, folks who are enslaved, then we're going to colonize them elsewhere. And so the period comes about. And so they're, they're supporting this. And so I tell that story there. I think it's a, it's, it's a really important story for us to be aware of for both its good and tragic. Did I already go to you? What? Not on this okay. one. Okay. Yes. I would say probably the, the book that's made the most impact would be Shattering Religion. Um, because it was the first one in a while that really talked about the relationship between white and black churches of Christ. Uh, one of the reasons I think it was important is because uh, even for those of us that have grown up in this tradition, it was very new information. It centers around a court case that took place in 1967 uh, with the closing National Christian Institute. 
And that was important year, 67, 68, because the National Christian Institute closed, Marshall Peeble died, and then you had this court case which pitted black and white members of Church of Christ against one another. And what startled me about that, I mean, it was a formative event, and, and most black members of Church of Christ know this event well, and it shaped a lot of their future and their relationships with white churches. But what's staggering is that most people like Church of Christ didn't even know what happened. And they, they didn't know the National Christian Institute. They were aware of the court case or any of its implications. And so even as late as this week on Sunday, I was, I was speaking to a church in Houston, and I told that story as part of what I was talking. And without fail, this always happens. I had four or five people come up to me, uh, and they had lived in the National area in that time. They had no idea that it ever happened. They just didn't, they didn't know that it existed. Um, like that, I had a student uh, that I was teaching the first two years of teaching at a Christian university, and there was a white student that was a Bible major that had grown up in Carroll, Texas. Uh, he was a Church of Christ kid, a ministry student, and I was talking about Southwestern Christian College, and he didn't know that it existed. He grew up in Carroll uh, as a Church of Christ <laughs> kid, and he didn't know that the school existed. But that indicates the distance between black and white church of Christ, there has been an incredible chasm between those, and we haven't talked about it. And so that book, I think, was, a, was an effort to try to highlight some of that dissonance and talk about some of the implications that we're still experiencing today. Okay, let's go to the two histories on the whole movement that came out within weeks of each other in September, October. So Leonard Allen wrote uh, in the Great Stream, imagining churches of Christ in the Christian tradition. And uh, I remember when I was trying to get into the PhD program in UCSB, and I wanted Robert Michelson, great Wesleyan scholar, to be the chairman of my PhD committee. And I knew he knew a lot of the Church Christ guy. He, you know, he had worked with Richard Hughes and all. And when I told him who I was, he said, "Oh, you're the people that skipped 1,900 years of history. You're just all acts too. You just run from the Bible to where we are right now." And I said, "I was stunned. I said, I don't skip 1,900 years of history. I want to study under you." Finally, I got in, but. Uh, that, that has never left me, that that was his image of us. So in the great stream, uh, Leonard is saying, where do we fit in the last 2,000 years? And the second book, Jack Reese, which we've talked about, At the Blue Hole. So I've asked uh, John Mark, who is a colleague of Leonard, to go first, say a word about what is this book trying to achieve? Do you think it achieves it? And then secondly, we'll go to Dyron, who just used this book as required reading in the course that ended last week, right? That's right. And he'll tell us what his students thought of this. So we'll start with you, John Mark. In the Great Stream, what do you think of it? Is this recorded? <laughs> yes. Will uh, Leonard actually hear this? No, Leonard will. Got to be careful what I say about my boss. Yeah, I think you actually say a little bit about his career as well. Yeah. Because I think this is a cultivation book for Leonard. This is, um, he began writing um, in some Campbell history movement 
generation uh, understand themselves by Christmas Church or Distant Voices, which was another book which, where he was able to take little snippets of history from our movement and the, the marginal voices in our movement and give them a voice and help us see we were not a monolithic movement. We, we were a diverse movement. That impacted a lot of uh, people, I think. Uh, and then his work on the Holy Spirit, which goes back to his books on Richardson and Fanning, Trinitarian um, um, uh, shape of theology. So he's been on this trajectory for quite a while. And I think this book is maybe his, I don't know if I'm going to say final statement, because that, that's a little harsh. But it is a culminating statement where he wants to illuminate, as he has in other books, that we have an anti-tradition tradition. We have a tradition that's anti-tradition, which the irony of that ought to be fairly obvious to us, but, but it comes under the veneer of we just believe the Bible. And we read the Bible just as it is. We don't bring anything to the Bible. We don't bring any traditions to the Bible, you know, etc. So I think that, that that's one of the major dimensions of this uh, work. As he wants to I recognize who we are as a free church tradition and an Anabaptist thing to some extent, one way or another. Um, but we, even though we have our niche and we have a particular mode of existence within the American scene, um, we are also participants in the great tradition. We are participants in the great stream. We have a we have an alley in that stream. We have a path in that stream. But we need to recognize that we are participants of a greater story. That we are not the story or the only story, but we are part of the big story. And we have contributions to make to the big story. We've made contributions to the big story. But we don't exalt our contributions as if that is the only story. And so I think he wants us to think about um, how useful creeds might be, confessions or statements of faith, um, not creeds in a sectarian sense, not creeds that are that identify different denominational distinctives. We're not talking about kind of Westminster Creed or London Confession Creed or even an Augsburg Confession Creed, although that comes close to being in some ways, at least Protestant. But to recognize that there is a confession of faith that we in the Church of Christ can articulate that participates in that great stream and is faithful to that great stream. Uh, I don't remember if he mentioned this in the book. I, I don't think he did. Um, but, uh, you know, at Wilson University, we crafted, Leonard, and, Leonard took the lead, and Leonard and I crafted this statement of faith for the university that the board has adopted. And it is kind of a, a great stream confession. That basically every stream in Christian faith could confess this. Um, so I think that's, he wants 
This is sort of my last. And then at the end, as he's wrapping up the book, um, he gives a restorationist imaginary, he calls it. If, you know, if we were to, our restoration glasses on, looking at the great stream, and here's his, he says, what follows is what I think a restorationist imaginary can look like as it is informed by the great stream of faith. And here were his six points. One, grounded in the Trinitarian and Christological center. Two, oriented around worship in the Trinity. Three, immersed in scripture. Four, focused on the mark of the church as apostolic. Five, traditioning as a necessary feature of Orthodox faith. And six, following Jesus in the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. Then on the back in the blurb, Scott McKnight, a popular author, lives in the Chicago area, he writes, the churches of Christ have established themselves in a Bible-only tradition. But without surrendering one inch to the form of the place of the Bible in all theological formation, Leonard Allen calls to the churches of Christ to see the value of the great tradition. <coughs> and the six features at the end of his book, the six features of his restorationist imaginary could well become the leading areas of thought in the next generation. And if so, we may see a revival in America beginning with the restorations. Whoa. So I just asked Leonard, did you pay him to say that? <laughs> and, uh, but that, that's a high tribute. Now let's talk about this. They, two histories couldn't be any more different. It's, and they're both wonderful. And, uh, but they're just so different. So you tell us what you thought of the, at the Blue Hole. Yeah, well, what I thought is I, so in Paradigm, we have to turn in our book orders like six months before we actually teach the class. <laughs> so I put in my book orders, and then uh, about a month before I had to begin the class, I read this book, and like everyone, so a person has said, I couldn't put it down. In my case, I think it was literal. I think I read the whole thing. I mean, I know I read the whole thing, but I think it was maybe one or two cities, but I just ate it. And then I had to tell the bookstore, hey, uh, withdraw one of the books, and I need to insert this new book. They said, we only have one month before the class begins. I said, I'm sorry, but I'll just have it ordered on Amazon, but they need this book. And so I, I and that's at the Blue Hole by Jack Reese. Jack Reese was at ACU for years. But I designed my, it, it had such an impact on me that I, I designed my course around this book to a large extent. I brought in guest speakers such as Jerry Rushford, who came to the Rushford Center. 
Lori came into the class, Tim and Lucy Perrin were there. One of my students is in the back, Isa Armstrong. So it's amazing how uh, Alan Henderson uh, gave a lecture on the Black Church of Christ. And it's just, it's just um, it has transformed my thinking. Let me tell you what it's about. So the idea for the book, At the Blue Hole, came along when Jack Reese was having a conversation with Doug Foster, who was my supervisor. Leonard and Doug were my supervisors at ACU. This movement is so small. Church of Christ is so small. And so Jack Reese is talking with Doug Foster, and it is in 2012 at ACU. Jack asked Doug, he said, when did our movement go from being a unity movement to such a fractious, divisive movement? Um, and Doug responded this way. He said, it was 1929. Uh, T.B. Laramore, as many of you will know, T.B. Laramore was known for unity. He was known to be a reconciler. He refused to choose between Church of Christ and disciples. He refused to choose between Republican and Democrat. He refused to enter the raucous debates that have plagued our movement since Alexander Campbell, who was talked about a fractious person. He, he was very divisive. Alexander Campbell was. T. B. Laramore died in 1929. And there was a pallbearer at that funeral. It was here in California. There was a pallbearer at that funeral who really defined our movement for the rest of the 20th century. He was a young firebrand preacher, very divisive. His name was Foy E. Wallace. Foy E. Wallace was a pallbearer at T.B. Laramore's funeral. And that just a fit if you know what I'm talking about. T.B. Laramore, the great reconciler, and Foy E. Wallace, the great divider. Doug Foster said, I think that is kind of a passing of the baton where this, our movement was more looking like T.B. Laramore and suddenly, that baton, once it falls, it gets picked up by Foy E. Wallace. Just in short, Foy E. Wallace was a firebrand. He was the type to name and shame you if your doctrine deviated from his. He was a fractious person. His preaching, it, it gathered in the, the, the people. I mean, people came to his preaching. Why? Because he knew what he stood for. So to his credit, he knew what he stood for. But the problem was, people don't agree on everything. And if you were slightly different from him on anything, he named and shamed you in his journals, which he had control of the great journals throughout the 20th century. Boy, he was did. And Foster basically said it, it was a real unfortunate turn in our movement. And we've had a hard time getting out of Foy E. Wallace and getting back to T.B. Laramore, kind of reconciling, uh, refusing to participate in some of the raucous debates and so forth. And so that Jack Reese uses that story to begin at the Blue Hole. At the Blue Hole is basically a popular history of the Stone Campbell movement. That's basically what it is. It's extremely readable. Uh, but the subtitle to the book is, Jamie, what is it? The Elegy of... Elegy for a Church in the Age. 
elegy of a church on the edge. So he's basically talking in funerary terms. He's basically saying this movement is dead in the water if we're not careful. Listen to this quote. He says, page 176, if you have the book. The churches of Christ are in trouble. They're broken. All of them. Some more acutely than others. One way or another, they're going to die. Whether they die out of self-interest or in self-denial is not yet clear. But this we know. We cannot fix them. Not on our own. That's the key. Not on our own. How do we fix them? That's where the title comes in. At the Blue Hole in San Antonio, Texas. Who would build a city? Seventh largest city in the United States. Who would build a city like that in San Antonio? Well, the mission, the Catholic missionaries did. Why? Because there's an underground aquifer that has watered that city since the Catholic missions in the 1800s. There's this underground aquifer where it comes out of the ground. It's, it's hundreds of feet underground, but it comes out of this place outside of San, outside of San Antonio now, called what they, the locals call the Blue Hole. And so basically Jack Reese is saying, we have hope because there are some things, there's some water that we don't yet see, but it's there. And we can draw on that resource and we can sustain ourselves. But the question is, are we gonna tap into that aquifer? If we just continue on pretending that someday people are gonna start coming back, then we're dead in the water. But if we can tap into that blue hole, there are resources that could revitalize our movement. And that's it in a nutshell. I mean, he points out a lot of statistics that come from Stan Brandberg, basically that our movement is strong in six states in the United States, and you can probably guess where those six states are. Over half of our members are from six states, and they're between Texas and Tennessee. And he says, our movement's got to, we've got to grow. Of course, that's the, the belt of our movement, and that's important. But we've got to be able to exist in places like California. And it's, it's a slog, let me tell you. I preach for, I, I minister at a church called Redondo Beach Church of Christ. We happen to be trending in the positive direction. But I look at the other 75 churches of Christ in LA County, very few are trending in the positive direction. They're all about to, uh, well, put it this way, they're struggling. Okay, let's uh, move past America and have a worldview. I'll ask Jamie to talk. Jamie, what you wrote to me was, and this uh, can, can we say can we say a word about the most people who move? Oh, yeah, yeah. okay, yeah. Did you make a Leonard is helping us 
think hard about how we fit into the broader Christian tradition. And so, you know, those the list you read, like, look how we can be here and we can embrace these things. And I think um, uh, Jack is helping us really grab onto our 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 history. And he's got a similar list of five things, but it's these beautiful things, these heroes that we want to lift up. And I want to know that Jack is doing something that we can do more. And that's looking at people who have helped us think about in our own church how we've had some. We have had people who have seen the gospel uh, as including, in its essence, a concern for social justice. Uh, and he does lift up Cassius. I think we need to lift up Samuel Cassius with David Wilson as these people who give us, in our own tradition, this vision of a social concern. I think that's one of the places uh, where, where we have um, to learn. So I just want to notice this. Yeah, very good. Uh, when we were talking about the books that changed thinking a while ago, I didn't contribute, but I would have said Jamie's book. Uh, I just had not thought in this category. Among the early evangelicals, the transatlantic origins of the Stone Campbell movement. So Jamie writes to me, I would like to mention how transatlantic, transnational perspectives helped me contextualize the early Campbell movement within the transatlantic interdenominational mission movement in my book, Among the Early Evangelicals. So uh, let's, let's talk missions for a moment. And uh, uh, I'm, I'm almost not sure how to get into it, but you had said okay. you would help us get started. Uh, John Marbury mentioned it a little bit. Um, but so one of the things that's really interesting about us is people have, we've always talked about ourselves and people have always talked about as this most American denomination, yeah. right? I just mentioned a minute ago about Lincoln Hatch, uh, you know, and all the ways that he showed that he this revolutionary era. Um, and so what that book does is um, try, one of the reasons that, people, that we see ourselves and other people see us as an American group is because the discipline of history, when it got started in the 1880s, 1890s, as a profession, I think, uh, there was a deep need for national stories in the early 1900s. And so historians were asking questions that were founded by nation and by nation state. And so we kind of got caught up in that. And so people asked the question, what's this movement? And we're an American movement. Uh, the other one is exceptionalism. So we, we've had a, a little bit of viewing ourselves as exceptional and viewing America uh, as exceptional. Uh, and because of that, we've asked, we continually ask ourselves about what, what, what about America was so important that led us to arise in America at particular time and sort of rediscover the ancient gospel? So we told ourselves stories about that. Others have told ourselves uh, told stories about us in that way. Um, when we take a broader view, which is something that's really interesting uh, for historians, the last 30, 40 years, there's been a push against this bounding our question of nation and thinking more broadly. Um, in world history, right? Thinking about broader transatlantic, transnational world histories. When we take that perspective, and then also broader perspective, okay, what if we're, what if we do look like other people at the same time as us? What if we like weren't totally different to you? Uh, what if we ask questions about Methodists and Baptists? How how are they different and similar to us and compare them to us? And so that's what the book kind of does. And when we did that, and there's some new documents around, um, the book actually really situates this in evangelical missionary movement. I'll just say the sum of the book, and then we can move on. So we're supposed to talk about world history. We might do that at the end. 
Um, the book actually argues that. What's the book? Sorry, the Among the Early Evangelicals. Uh, I think it, it might not be under this actually. Yeah, Among the Early Evangelicals, Transatlantic Origins of the Stone Candle Movement. It's on DC Press, published in 2017. And that's a revision of my dissertation at Baylor University. So the book argues that the, the Campbell Movement, especially, is a product of the Evangelical Missionary Movement of the 1790s. In fact, the Missionary societies, uh, and I got as many of the documents as I could find. They, Thomas Campbell basically, I mean, it was a copy and paste. The Declaration of the Dress of the Christian Association of Washington is a copy and paste of all these other missionary societies, one of which he was a co founder in Ireland before he came to America, the Evangelical Society of Ulster. This is really, really important for us to be aware of in terms of if we really care about who we are, what is our DNA. Where do we come from? Um, we come from this very particular place, swept up in a moment that a lot of people, among Baptists and Anglicans and Presbyterians and Independents, believed that those denominational categories were less important than the New Testament. And they got around the denominations and joined these societies and pitched in their money so that they could together, even though they were existing in different denominations, they could together support people based on just a simple New Testament gospel, to go and win the world to Christ. That was the vision. Uh, Thomas Campbell put that vision down in the Declaration of Address, but that vision is clear in all these other evangelical missionary and Bible society documents as well as the 1790s. Let me mention a couple of missionary books. Uh, Marty Highfield has written, and Marty, I think you're the only person in the world who has written this, A Time to Heal, Missionary Nurses in Churches of Christ in Southeastern Nigeria from 1953, when you were a little girl, I think, to 1967, Martha Highfield. Her parents started Nigeria Christian Hospital. But the blurb on the back, ever, ever, Hufford, are you still here? I talked to him beforehand, did ever have to leave? Uh, I loved his blurb on the back. As I read this book, I laughed out loud and was moved to tears. I saw missiological principles emerge as missionaries faced a host of worldview challenges. At a personal level, this book serves as a powerful testimony for the necessity of a holistic mission that integrates the proclamation of the kingdom with the care for the sick. Marty, what time are you teaching this tomorrow? I'm at 9 o'clock, 9 a.m. AC 270. AC, Appleby Center 270, 9 to 945. And uh, this book came out this year within the last? Within the last year. Within the last year. And when you started in 1953, is that when your parents started the hospital? Oh, no. And I, I would argue that they didn't. <laughs> I wouldn't give them that much credit. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> They're your parents. I'm trying to. <laughs> I wasn't born yet in 1953. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, now I uh, learned a great deal myself in doing this book. I was familiar with the work that. Nigerian Christian Hospital actually was established in the mid-1960s, and my parents were part of that. Um, it's not a memoir, it's a history, yeah. I always said that. 
But I learned that um, the earliest Church of Christ missionaries who went in 1953 to Southeastern Nigeria sort of incidentally brought nursing with them. It was kind of an accident. It was a very go-getter woman who uh, was married to Jean Eden, something like that. Is the hospital still there? The hospital is still functioning with the uh, African staff. And uh, I would say this is, this is your point. This is where the, uh, they began the work when there was an intersection of the Nigerian restoration movement itself that started there. Uh, it had Presbyterian roots and the American restoration movement came together. And so this work was a roadside track. So you stopped in 1967, which is when the Civil War hit there, and it was over in 1970. So when you when your parents went back in 1970, was there anything still standing? Or? I am standing. <laughs> I have pictures. Uh, the bullet riddled everything had been wired out of the wall. You know, there was sort of the last stand even in that area in the Civil War. So yeah. it. Uh, well, have a good class tomorrow at 9 in AC 270. This book just arrived in my mail this week. I don't know all the PhDs that are being written on the Church of Christ history. And this one is by Arthes, and he preaches up in Washington State. It is 670 pages long. And the title is Churches of Christ, A History of the Restoration Movement in Malawi. Malawi, Africa. From 1906, and I, I just got a book. I wouldn't have thought we were there in 1906. And, uh, and he takes it to 1981, so I don't know why he leaves out the last 40 years. So I, I need to get into it and see. But yeah, I'll use it as an example of uh, Loretta included last night Jeremy Hayes, PhD, at Boston University. I talked to Jeremy last night. He wanted to be here today, but they just had maybe three. And uh, they're doing well at Love Christian. He's now teaching restoration history at Love Christian. But here's his, the title of his PhD dissertation. It's about Sarah Andrews. By the way, if you walk through the Heritage Center on the way out, we just put up a photo of Sarah Andrews last night. So we'll take a look at it. Along with Helen Young and Helen Cumberland. It's got lights on. You'll see it against the back wall. But he uses the quote from Sarah Andrews, and here's the title. Stand for the New Testament order and trust God for the consequences. That's in quotation marks. Stand for the New Testament order and trust God for the consequences. Sarah Andrews and the emergence of churches of Christ as a global Christian tradition. 1916 her death in 1961. He finished that PhD in 2020 at Boston University, and he told me last night he's looking for a publisher, but right now he's got three little boys at home, and so couldn't come. Bob Hooper has been mentioned, uh, and he wrote a book called If Your Enemy Hungers, Feed Him, which was about Japan. And uh, Bonnie Miller wrote a book about 52 single women, single women who thought, we're not going to get to serve much here in America. Single women are not real prominent. 
the church there. And they all went to Japan. So she writes a book called Messengers of the Risen Sun in the Land of the Rising Sun. Loretta, tell us about the book you're writing right now. What's the title, or the working title? And uh, you've been granted a sabbatical in January, so you'll make progress. But give us a quick summary. What are you doing? A history of women? Leader, leadership. Okay. In Stone County Women. Um, that's, I, like I said, I, I started with global history, and it did great work on women. I, I was pleased with that. I thought it was well woven into the narrative. But I realized there's just still so much more to do. Um, and I don't know, I, it's almost like I felt this like sense of vocation that I needed to be like, is it both 19th and 20th century? I'm doing every single possible thing I can. I think I might even have a lot of those pre-movements before the oh, okay. movements that came into it. And but talk you, about gender and those. But you laughed when I said that it would be done in April, so it looks like they would that. Well, partly because I don't need to go back to teaching until August, so I, I still have a summer. <laughs> I, I, I say that because I started working this almost right after I was working on the global Because they were just passive people, and, 
And there's other examples about it. So I can give you a bunch. That's one of the better ones. Campbell has something similar really that happens. There's some evidence that one of his sisters was pushing him to do it. That, and then there's another, I want to say it was John Smith's autobiography that he said there was a woman that talked Campbell into the baptism. And I, that one I'm less sure about. I'm like, it's possible. But the still when, when I, because that's where I started to research this. I read all these, like, where do I start? Like, okay. Because I should mention, since I'm not the church historian, I didn't study Restoration history in college. I had to go, but once I went to study movement, she was like, oh, shoot, I gotta go learn all that. So I've been doing catch up ever since. But uh, so I'm reading all these early biographies and, and looking for what I've been doing now is find out when the garden is done. And it just got me know it. I'll say one more, the other kind of thing I'm doing. Um, when, I, when I started reading, well, I had to figure out sources. That's a whole long story. I'm reading all the church histories. Um, of course, the journals read those. But I don't know, I'm mistrustful of the journals because that's such a public thing, and I think sometimes it was more of an ideal than a reality. So I'm a little leery of the journals entirely. Um, but I've also read church bulletins, so that was my recent news source of the awesome. But among the things that began to occur, occur to me is I read a bunch of church histories. This is the story of instrumental music in, you know, church history is being a big deal, but okay, no instruments. And you would think that would have nothing to do with the gender. And yet I have learned it was all about gender. And the reason is because of people who were musicians that might be full of women. It was considered what you know a well-polished, educated woman could do. She could play an instrument. Usually piano or organ. So who who played? Even in other churches, who played them? Who I mean, 80% of the time it was women. Not always, but often. Most often. And so I kind of think that one of the reasons that churches of Christ rejected the instruments is because women wanted it and women played them. They would have given them a bigger role in the church. And that you're coming from a pretty patriarchal culture in a lot of places where churches of Christ were prominent. And that was one of the kind of dividing lines between whether you went the disciples' route or whether you went the churches of Christ route is your kind of orientation on things like gender. And so it's all wrapped up in, I just noticed these patterns. Um, and realized that, you know, and often it's women that raise the money to buy the organs. Okay, let's continue the discussion <laughs> of, uh, she's looking futuristic on her book. So Stanley, tell me about, uh, you know, I, I brought with me Realizing the California Dream. Calvin Bowers was with us for 55 years. So he writes the history of 25 churches of Christ in Los Angeles. And I helped a little because I helped him get a sabbatical. And he couldn't write the whole thing in the sabbatical, but he did finish it. And that's an example of what needs to be done. And what was your thought about hard-fighting soldiers? This University of Tennessee Press published this last year. I was the reader for it. I wrote a much better blurb than what they gave me on the back of this cover. They really sort of thinned that out, but I wrote a complimentary thing. But uh, say a word about Ed Robinson, all the books that are out, and uh, where do we go from here? What needs to be written? Thanks for this question, and also appreciate the ones you talk about the second grade work, and so those are the third grade work, we just appreciate that. <laughs> but, um, excuse me. I believe that um, this has come up in this conversation, and um, I'm kind of informed by post-colonial theory, right? Especially when you think about missions. And for me, what I believe what um, Robertson models 
is the self-affirmation of, of speaking for oneself, right? Especially within the history. And I think we need more of that. So for, for an example, if I'm writing about women within the Church of Christ as a male, I want to be in collaboration with women and not speak for them. So the same thing with um, African Americans. I think sometimes our history is captured within, only captured within race relations, if you will, right? But I think there is so, so much beauty within the history itself, right? Uh, which is a part of our humanity. And I think maybe there, uh, we might need more of an investment in uh, black and brown scholars in the United States so that we can tell our own stories, right? Um, and then if we are writing these stories about others, then to do it in collaboration. So I think in the future, uh, we need more scholars telling their own stories, uh, not only um, black people, but you know, our Latinx brothers and sisters, right? Telling their own stories, um, especially if you think about California, Texas, all of these great churches, right? And so that's what I would love for us to see in the future. Uh, self-affirmation, uh, collaboration, and telling our own stories. What was the reaction when, I felt like we needed a good biography of Bowser. I just felt like that story had never been told. Finally, there was a thin little biography that came out by Vernon Boyd, a white preacher, Chicago, Detroit. I thought, I, I was really glad to read it. I just, we didn't have anything. What was the reaction in the black churches? They felt like a white man should not have written that or they wished somebody would pick up from that foundation and write more. Do you think we need a larger biography of Bowser or, uh, I mean, we've got, we've got Keeble, we've, got, we've had some good biographical studies mm -hmm. or instead of biographical studies, do we, we go in a different direction? I think that's a great question, and I can't speak for all African-American churches. Um, I would say this within Church of Christ itself, there are so many different thoughts about different things, right? Um, but what I will say, even, let's just say the focus on people himself, which is a great focus because baptizing over, you know, 40,000 people, that's, that's a great history. But I think um, if we were to hear from uh, people within uh, the African-American Church of Christ and know the history, they, they might have other people they will write histories about, right? So um, that determines who is important or what is important, what information comes out based on who's writing and who's doing the research or who's determining the future of the research. So um, some of the examples that I've heard earlier, we, we have these histories that are primarily written by men, and you're gonna miss uh, all of this history in relation to women with the uh, missions and even in the United States right now, right? Um, so, I mean, NAC Tuggle put together a lot of um, tent meetings, right? And was collaborating with uh, people like Lipscomb and, and others. And, you know, there's even a story about uh, her with the all women's church, right? So these are the stories I think uh, that are really important. And uh, there are so many other stories. We have an event at Normandy, uh, I think last year, with uh, attorney Fred Gray, who's the attorney for uh, Rosa Parks and Martin King Jr. Uh, with some of our um, organizations within the city itself. And so much history came just from the members. Like we have some members, we have members at Normandy who drove buses during the uh, bus boycott, right? Um, one of uh, my members, Sister Williams, her father was in this photograph in this book 
with uh, Dr. King, right? So these stories are there. And so uh, my question is how, how do we invest in these communities um, in order to tell their stories, allow them to tell their own stories? Let's go around the panel and one book that you'd like to see come out next year or soon. I'll start by saying I think we need a book on the Churches of Christ in Ukraine. Um, Sasha Prokopchuk, we brought him here with his wife and son and daughter in 2011. I'm sorry, uh, Sasha Prokopchuk, we brought him and his wife and son and daughter here to Bible lectures in 2011. We honored them in Firestone Field House. I wrote the plaque and I remember saying, because of your, and I listed like six or seven ministries he had, because of your prison ministry and your children's ministry and your television ministry, Sasha Pogaccio had three television stations going. He was having more impact than Bessel Barrett Baxter had at Herald of Truth with us in the 50s and 60s. I listed all those ministries and then I said, and for the 300 congregations of the Church of Christ that you have established in your ministry. Now when the troops came in, the last I heard, this was in the editorial of the Christian Chronicle. Who's our editor of the Chronicle? He was writing the uh, editorial. He had been over to Ukraine with Sasha. And uh, uh, Sasha got up on a platform and said to the Russian soldiers, we are not your enemies. Uh, the people sending you over here to rape our women and to kill our children, uh, we are not your enemies. Lay down your guns, go home. Don't let them talk you into this, go home. In that editorial in the Christian Chronicle, he ended by saying, I don't know if I will see Sasha again. But, uh, Katrina, thanks to your mother, uh, I now know that Sasha is still alive. How recently was that for your mom talking? <clears throat> yeah, this is from Eastern European Mission. You know this wonderful, you know, it's a great missionary arm of Churches of Christ, EEM, Eastern European Mission. Sasha is alive and well in Kiev and is very active, help, you know, I mean, people are dying all around her, but he is still alive. But, when this is over, uh, the story of, of Churches of Christ in Ukraine, it, maybe it could open with Stephen Bielak's uh, radio program into you know, Slavic America. When I was preaching in Rochester, Michigan, for that church, Stephen was in the basement preaching to Russia and Ukraine with that. And then when I, we got over to Innsbruck, not Innsbruck, Lausanne in 1971, he had set up his radio station in Lausanne and was preaching into Ukraine. And then he ended up establishing a congregation in Ukraine. Now, he, and we honored him at Pepperdine in 1993, and he died about 2004. And he wrote that hymn that Jack Boyd put the music to, While on the Sea, Hear the Terrible Roaring, right? What a great song. It's a lament for his homeland, Ukraine. So I, somebody could tie all that together. Stephen Bielak, Sasha Prokopchuk, all of that. That's a book I'd like to see. What do you want to see next year? Well, I'm actually working on uh, kind of the other side of what Sam was talking about here. A lot of research early on center on kind of relationship between black and white, churches of Christ. And I think one of the stories that hasn't been told 
sort of the historical discussion right now is not only the great work that Ed's doing, he's doing such a good job of writing about some of the, the African American Church of Christ and lifting some of the voices that haven't been heard. Uh, but I'm, I'm working on a project to try to do the same thing within white churches of Christ. Uh, there were, I think that's interesting at the outset, the vast majority, which comes no surprise, of white churches of Christ throughout the 20th century. I mean, I don't know any way to say it, but they're just an incredibly racist organization. Um, just as much or, or more than all other southern white, predominantly white denominations in America. And some of those stories are horrific. Uh, there were, however, a few exemplars that I think we need to pay attention to that have been lost over time. And, and I think those stories are important because we continue to live in America uh, where racial tensions are strong. And I think some of these voices need to be brought to the foreground as exemplars or models uh, to great courage, perhaps the people that are coming behind them. So, uh, I've finished a couple of chapters, I've been working on a book to, to involve some of these together, people like Walter Birch. Uh, what is the working title of this book? There's no title yet. There's no title yet. <laughs> what I'm doing is I have several chapters I've been working on. Uh, probably within the next year, I'm going to take those together and publish a book. Their ACU Press is doing that. Uh, but it's really trying to lift some of those voices. Similar to what Leonard has done in the past with trying to lift some of the, the voices that haven't been heard before. Uh, but I'm, I'm excited about the project. I think it's, it's timely. I, I think we need to hear some of those voices. Because I think we have the impression that, that nobody ever said anything. And that's not true. And I think we need to hear some of that to, to kind of get courage for those of us living in a very tumultuous time right now. Stanley, are you writing a book or uh, have a suggestion for a book that needs to come out next year or two? Well, the, the book I'm writing is my dissertation. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, you know, being at Normandy and um, with uh, the legacy of Carol Pitts, I think that that's something that I would want to do, which he has a thesis that you're familiar yeah. with. Oh, you know, yeah. On, um, you know, the history of Christ and civil rights. Yeah. And I think even reading that now in this moment is really profound. And he has a lot of uh, primary sources um, at the church as well. And um, I think um, that's, you know, immediately that's um, kind of where my mind is. Has anybody written on Carol Pitts? Um, just one text. Yeah. Or, I'm, I'm, I haven't seen anything. I know he's been written about in certain other books, right? But um, just with a particular focus, I'm not so sure. And his wife, is she still living? She's still living. His sister. Drive. <laughs> uh, I think she's about to be 94 this month. <laughs> no cane, just a little vibrant as ever. Right. You need to write that. Jamie? Oh, just, and just, just hearing that story, and nothing jumping off
who despite our isolationism and despite our exclusivism, participated in, in civil rights activism. Uh, well, we, because of the, what we historians call the tyranny of the archives, a lot of stuff's not written down, those voices got to be captured. They're not, especially those ones aren't written down. So oral history projects can do that, and I hope we can start seeing some of those uh, because there are a lot of narratives to tell. And I think also not just for understanding who we've been and bringing up voices that are not in traditional sources. The same works with women's stories. I think women's stories also speak to some other historical questions, like one of the other historical questions is, you know, how you know how much do we participate in, for instance, the religious right in the American conservative and a traditional narrative has been, oh, you know, we, we didn't um, because we were isolationists, right? If you start looking at women's voices, which we traditionally have not looked at, right? We start finding people we were talking about last night, right? Like, uh, or, or something, while you had Hobbes, who was one of the most influential women in America for the religious right, leading opposition against the equal rights of men for women. Um, and so, starting to pay attention to those voices also start making our history more Right. So, um, yeah, I think there, there are ways that we find voices that we, either because of the purity of the archives or because of our methods, we have silence and we can find different ways to lift those up. Tell us why you are rewriting Richard Hughes' history, which came out in, what, 1997? And, and has he given you permission to rewrite his history? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> <I> mean, <laughs> when can I write this book? Okay, yeah, so I'm revising it because he asked. <laughs> so Richard, uh, he, was a one of, he was a reader on a dissertation on one of their evangelicals and stuff, so we had to know one another. Um, and so Urban's approached him about updating, and I especially looked at Trevor Thompson's book. Mm -hmm. Trevor Thompson's been a real advocate for us at Urban's. Um, if you don't know Trevor, uh, he taught AC for a while, and he's one of the acquisitions editors there. Uh, so he's been a real asset for us, looking up our stories and our scholars. And so, um, Erdman's approach to Richard and said, hey, it's 25 years old and this exploded the minds of many, many people and we, we want this in fresh edition, but we want a fresh edition. Uh, Richard was just moving to Lipscomb and had one Meredith and he's like, I don't know. So Richard's like, would you be interested in And so Erdman's and Richard approached me uh, and so we got it under contract in 2018 and I'm almost done. I can't promise when you buy it, but the uh, manuscript is due in, um, in August. So the, the new edition will look short. Scholarship, uh, especially the scholarship of Ed, um, who's really brought a whole other world of our history uh, to the forefront. And then you'll have a new chapter, which I'm writing right now, which is terrifying, on the 21st century. Um, and probably the title is, um, you know, it's going to be uh, Identity Crisis Amid Decline. Uh, and looking at, because this is the thing that's, you know, kind of the angst that we've been living with, it's behind Jack's book. So will it list Richard Hughes and Jamie Gorman? Yes, we are. We are co-authors, so he said you can do whatever you want. Um, and so actually, you know, he, he he just now has the revised chapters that he's giving me feedback on. But it could be available in August. This no, 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 no. But the manuscripts in August for yeah. that means earliest would be August 2023. 2023. Laurie, what book, not counting your own, which we know will be out soon, what would you like to see published? What topic? I think when, I have a few ideas, but when Jamie mentioned 
Well, yeah, maybe. But if you don't know, Church of Christ Women were all single-handedly responsible for the defeat of the Equal Rights Movement in the 70s. I couldn't hear that. Church of Christ Women were almost single-handedly responsible for defeating the Equal Rights Movement in oh. the late 70s. Oh, I see. If you look at some of the key states that ended up defeating and even some that changed, almost always it was a church Christ woman that led the anti-Aryan They they loaded up entire buses, church buses, and took women to these anti-Aryan rounds, which kind of blew my mind when I this. Because, you know, church guys are not very politically active and it, and So the story has never been told book wise. Yeah. Now there's there's pieces that have appeared mainly in dissertations, honestly. Um, and I'm, I'm trying to do a little bit of it for the book I'm doing, because I just don't want to do it entirely much. But I think that's when the world history just found out something. The world history is these women like, why did you do that? Like, what was going on? Why did you get that bus and go to this rally? I mean, I kind of understand it. I don't know. But, but still, I find for Churches of Christ, that's just so wow. Because um, I don't think there's anything like it. Now, have you gone around and have you interviewed any women? No, because that would, that's a years long process. Yeah. To do yeah. That. And yeah. I'll never finish this book. But I want to. Maybe I can finish this one. Yeah. Maybe I have a dream. Maybe a dream of going out. Because, and there's very little archival material mm -hmm. on it. The best sources I found is a lot of newspaper coverage of it. So that I've been able to find a little bit. It reminds me of Michael Casey. Interviewing every pacifist in the Church of Christ for Michael was pacifist and he wanted to meet all these people. Well, there's one fun story I can tell about it. I didn't know about Lonnie Beth Haas, and I knew she was a Church of Christ woman, but I didn't know what church. I tried to find it. I was Googling it, and surely that will come up. It did not. But then I was at ACU a couple months ago talking to Matt Ice, and, and I said, Well, all I know is that she's in four parts and she went to the Church of Christ. He's like, Well, here, he brought me like these 20 files. Or churches of Christ that they had is that they all have directories. Look, the third one I looked at. She was the church secretary at the Polytechnic Church of Christ oh, in Texas. Yeah. She went on to all kinds of crazy things. Wow, this woman is unbelievable. Anyway, it, it's now something else. I'm still learning. There's a history of it that's at Southern Methodist University that I'm trying to get, and records of it at TCU that I'm going to work on. Because I just think she's really. John Mark, what would you, are you writing anything right now that you would list, or? Uh, not specifically in, in restoration history at this moment. Uh, I retired next year, so maybe I'll have time a little bit to dig into some things I wanted to dig into. Uh, that I have several ideas. One, I think someone needs to write a biography of Solomon Holman. Write a biography of? Of Holman, Selena Holman. And, um, he was there, you know, in Middle Tennessee, and I think there's a story to tell about in the 1880s and 1930s. I don't think this the participation of women in the assembly was a settled issue. It was not a settled issue. Um, there was some debate about that. So I think something needs, that story needs to be told. I've also thought about. I would really like to dig into the sermons, and newspapers, and archives around the Civil War in terms of what was available in terms of telling stories of, of a Garfield, for example, and telling the story of Wilson, and telling the story of, of why, why, why were people pacifists? Why were they fighting 
say we need a book on this topic. Yeah, I, I have, a, have two ideas in mind, and one impacts the other. Um, and, and I'm excited to get the Q&A uh, after this. I know Jerry's going to do some Q&A, so I'll make this quick. But the, the book that needs to be written is we need an American author to team up with an African author who understands the Stone Camel movement in Africa where the movement is growing powerfully. I'd like to see a history of the Stone Camel movement, although my, one of my advisors, Everett Ferguson, said he doesn't like the Stone Camel movement. He wants to keep it restoration. Because Stone Camel movement, like we've talked about, there's some baggage calling our movement that, which is really since Leroy Garrett. It's always called the restoration of it. But I would like to see a book on the history of the Stone Camel movement, the history of the Restoration Movement in Africa. As many of you may or may not know, Africa passed Latin America as the continent with the most Christians in about 2020. If you've never been to Sub-Sahara, Africa, you should. The Christianity is booming there, booming. It, it, almost everybody is a Christian. And it, the churches are just overflowing. They have to do multiple services. And that applies to the Church of Christ. That's where our movement is strongest. And that's where Christianity is strongest. And it's a part of our story that global Christianity historians, that's what I do. We're onto this. How did this happen? Well, it, it's a story that's rooted in missions. So we need somebody in America who's familiar with global missions to team up with somebody who's familiar with the, our movement in all of its guises. Disciples, which is very strong in the Congo, for example. Church of Christ, Christian churches, and ICOC. We need, some, we need a, a Westerner to team up with an African and, and do this history together. Now, I tell you because I think the book that I'd like to see written is basically a response to Jack Reese. And that is, where do we go from here? Folks, I'll say this, brothers and sisters, I don't want the Church of Christ to become like our precursor, which is called the Classics in Scotland, which is now a museum faith. What do I mean by museum faith? It's a faith where we talk about what it used to be. Ah, TV, Larimer, Foy E. Wallace, Stone, Campbell, 
That's a museum faith. That's a faith that you go into a museum. I want to see a living faith alongside the museum. I want to see a living faith. So what I want to see is somebody to say, here's the history. We understand that. We're on serious decline. I don't know if you guys know, but the disciples of Christ, our sister, between 2010 and 2020, officially, this is according to their statistics, they lost about 60% of their membership. We're headed towards that cliff just based on ages. Our cliff is coming. Their cliff is happening between 2010 and 2020. As, as Anne Brandberg and others, like Jack Reese, pointed out, our cliff is coming. We're declining right now, but it, we're about to hit, we're about to encounter a cliff. What happens when we die by 60% in our entire movement in America in a decade, which could happen probably between 2020 and 2030? So, what do we make in 2030 and 2040? What do we do about that? I think we need to utilize our history for not the preservation, but the enlightening and revitalizing of our future. I don't want us to become a museum faith. Okay, two questions from the audience for the panel. Uh, I'll let uh, Katrina take one of the mics. Um, this on. Historically, Christian churches and the churches of Christ come out of the same background. Can you explain what you think the churches of Christ are at the bottom of the decline curve or since the Christian churches are at the top of the growth curve? What would be the major differences that you would see? Does that question make sense to you? I don't know that the Christian churches necessarily describe themselves that way. I think a lot of times looking from the outside, over there, There are some, I'm sure, that we have a lot of many Christians and a lot of many churches. Um, and the bigger they get, the more like you can't really tell if they're a Christian church. You just can't tell So they, they, and their, their people don't, don't know very much part of something. Um, and so they just become so, they have kind of so many different divisions of Christianity. They build these big, big churches are just big and broad. Um, but that's a part of it. And they feel like you in the churches of 100 below Christian churches and the world Christian churches, they're the exact same as the world population of Christ. They're dying. Quick question over here. Hey, yeah. Um, <clears throat> so, uh, I'm really inspired by Morley's uh, uh, presentation and make it closely Theophilus of Brown Lerner, who a friend 
There's contributions that we can make. And, and especially now, TV Learnable can just. People hunger for that. You mean break down all these barriers and not fight each other? And, you know, and, 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 and you can fight. Like so, what, give, what is your so specific question for the panel? The question, how do you, how do you think of where are the stories? Where, okay, where can you go with that? Because I think that's, that's, not just, that's not just a little bit growth, that's explosive. Especially now, especially with this bipolar nation and world. I'll like to there. So, I think it's important uh, to go back to what James said earlier. I think it's just about oral histories. I think that's very important right now. Um, case in point, in the archives at ACU, in the Center for Restoration Studies, and some of the research that I've done the last couple of years, uh, I found just these, these case recordings that Bernard Boyd had done uh, from Floyd Rose, uh, which like the article, which is just done Floyd Rose right now. Uh, just his biography, his, his, his whole story, and Floyd Rose was an incredible activist. <laughs> Within the civil rights movement, talking about how, how active were we, uh, there was a sheriff in Valdosta, Georgia, a white sheriff that when Floyd moved back to the South and he retired, called uh, Floyd Rose to MLK down here. Uh, just the extent that he was involved with the civil rights movement throughout his life. And that we had that story because somebody recorded these interviews. Bernard Boyd did a, a series of interviews over three days and just got his life story. And so I think part of it is that we need to make sure that we're capturing the stories. And so, even beyond this panel, for those of you in the room, because you're interested in this topic, it's possible that you have these stories, uh, that you have these recordings, that you have family histories uh, that are written down. Uh, find a way to preserve those. You know, find a way to, to give those to ACU or Lipsa or somewhere else to make sure that we have those for future generations so we can tell them, because I think that's very important. Were there any other questions? Yes. What was brought up earlier was, you mentioned the, about Texas and Tennessee are the dominant, and I'm from Ohio, and I think noticing that, uh, that so much of writers and speakers and universities are concentrated in one area, and um, and also, could have noticed noticed that uh, that at, at, at this is event uh, there no, no no speakers from Ohio, and but uh, that um, that uh, that uh, how can people um, be people outside the, this Texas this Texas access we kind of get our voices heard and our stories told and then be taken and have be, be treated like they have significance. Mm -hmm. One area that we didn't get into was state history that I'm really partial to. Uh, David Holm, uh, David Baird has just written the history of the church in Oklahoma. Tom Albright and Jim McMillan have just finished Illinois. And uh, I, I, wish we could, I wish we could have a lot of histories from different geographical areas. We didn't even have time to go into that one. We probably let there's a lot of dinner programs. We've gone for two hours and 15 minutes, but thank all of you for coming and spending the whole afternoon.